Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. 19-year-old Timothy Piazza was a sophomore at Penn State when he pledged the fraternity last February. Part of the initiation into the frat required pledges to drink large amounts of alcohol at stations of what was called the gauntlet. Piazza was drunk and fell down a set of stairs, hitting his head. Members of the fraternity allegedly waited 12 hours to call for help. Piazza died in the hospital from his head injuries. 18 fraternity members are facing charges, including involuntary manslaughter. For most young adults, the college experience includes meeting new people by joining clubs, fraternities, sports teams, and organizations. Unfortunately, the initiation into these organizations often includes hazing, forced physical activity and abuse, humiliation, forced consumption of alcohol and food, sleep deprivation, and sometimes activities akin to torture. Hazing is the topic of our conversation today. In the first segment of the program, we are joined by Emily Pawan, who is executive director of hazingprevention.org, a national organization committed to educating students, organizations, and campuses about the dangers of hazing. Ms. Pawan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Leanne Kowiak, who also is a board member of hazingprevention.org. Her son Harrison was fatally injured in 2008 during hazing activity while he was at college. Ms. Kowiak, welcome to the program. Thank you, and appreciate you covering this very important topic. If you have a question or a comment and you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Maybe you have a story to tell about your own hazing or something that you witnessed. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Emily Poirot, let me start with you. Uh, Let's start by defining hazing in the context of uh, youth organizations. What is hazing? So there are a number of different, um, subtle different definitions that are out there if you've Googled the term, for example. But our organization has defined it as any action taken or situation created intentionally that causes embarrassment, harassment, or ridicule and risks emotional and or physical harm to members of a group or team, whether they're new or not, and regardless of the person's willingness to participate. That last part is important. as I said, some definitions vary, but they all have common factors. It's, there's a power differential between those who are in a group and those who want to join a group, or those who are seniors of a group and those who are sort of the junior members of a group. There's some sort of intentional uh, initiation practice that takes place. And um, when I mention the willingness, I think it's important to remember that willingness to participate does not absolve the responsibility for either party, because many times youth will consent because they want to join. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big point right there, a significant point, because uh, it seems as though one of the themes of this, if you will, or the consistencies, is that the people who subject themselves to, to hazing or joining a, an organization or group, they want to fit in. The, and you can go a step further and say there's peer pressure to fit in, Correct. Sure. It's a human nature to want to belong, to want to be part of a group, to want to be accepted. And not everybody consents to, you know, they may consent to joining a group, not knowing, you know, sort of some of the horrific things that might happen to them. Um, But everybody wants to, you know, sort of join and belong and and be accepted. You know, I'm not going to ask you for a history of hazing. I mean, it's probably going on for hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of years. But it seems as though it has gotten much worse as far as the dangers go. I mean, I can remember... You know, uh, shaving cream in, in someone's face, uh, someone being made to wear uh, clothing was embarrassing in, in the public, something like that. But when did we get to this point of, you know, where people's lives are in danger? 
hazing deaths have occurred for quite a number of years. Um, I, there's been at least one campus death for at least the last 20, 25 years uh, on college campuses, and the first reported deaths that were directly related to hazing, I think, were in the 1940s. Um, the the difficulty is that there is a slippery slope from wanting to join and having fairly harmless initiation rights quickly turn into more dangerous activities without people realizing. The other difficulty as far as statistics is that incidents are not always reported as hazing. The police will sometimes come and say, this person you know, passed away from alcohol. Um, you know, overuse of alcohol or or some other situation, and not necessarily know that it was directly related to a hazing event, or even prosecute um, with that term included. So sometimes I think that when you look at uh, older news stories, you might see that there was a death on campus, but not necessarily be able to tie it to hazing. And it almost seems as though many of the organizations that are, uh, where hazing is occurring, many of the clubs and organizations, that they're trying to outdo one another. I mean, that they're really using their imaginations with some of the ways they're doing this. But uh, some of the things you hear about, like I mentioned uh, Timothy Piazza, the Penn State uh, student, the gauntlet. Now, yeah. that I won't say is something new. I, I don't know whether that's going on for a long time, but it seems as though they get more dangerous as everyone is trying to one-up one another. And I, and I won't um, attribute this term to just um, social fraternities or sororities because we see it in popular clubs or groups, popular athletic teams, that as more people want to join groups or teams um, whether it's an academic club or whether it's a, a you know, fraternity, um, they want to start um, defining how people can get in. So the more popular, the more people who want to join, the more the human nature is to say, well, we want to define how you come in. And, of course, there's very healthy and good ways to do that. Um, but left to their own devices, sometimes youth can come up with uh, very dangerous activities that would not be at all sanctioned by either their national organization or their college or high school. Leanne Kowiak, uh, let's talk about your son, Harrison. Tell me about Harrison. Tell me about uh, what kind of young man he was. Well, Scott, Harrison was um, bright. He was um, very friendly. He was the type of person when he walked into the room, he lit up the room. He had a heart as good as gold. He was very giving to others. A quick example is when he was in high school, he uh, was walking out of the house almost with an extra pair of sneakers, and we asked him, what's that for? And he goes, oh, I'm just going to bring these in. And we inquired a little bit more, and he said, you know, there's somebody in school who really doesn't have much, and I really want to help him out. I'm not using these. And he really wanted to just help this individual so that he would not be made a fun of. So he was um, just a very friendly individual. Mm-hmm. So what about his goals? I mean, I, I know that he was a great golfer. In fact, uh, he got a, a partial scholarship uh, to play golf at uh, Lenore Ryan University in uh, in North Carolina. But uh, what were some of his goals? What do we want? he want to do for a career? Yeah, so, Scott, he was very attracted to golf, and he did get accepted to Lenore Ryan with an academic as well as a, sco- a golf scholarship. And he was thinking he would like to get into business. He was thinking, I would like to start my own business, maybe tie it in with the golf aspect. Um, He had some some goals. Uh, He wanted to eventually one day get married. We had talked about that, but he said he had plenty of time for that. And the tragedy of this, Scott, is that he missed out on all of it. We didn't, as parents, get to see him graduate, get his first job, get married, have children. And my daughter, his younger sister, well, um, she misses her big brother. He was the ultimate big brother who would always try to guide her the right way and give her advice, and she's missing out on that. And I understand that uh, your your daughter is on her way to college now, right? UCLA? She is. She is a freshman in college, correct. Oh, okay. All right, so let's go back, and I know this is painful, but let's go back to November of uh, 2008, and you get that phone call that uh, obviously no uh, parent wants to get. What were you told? Yeah, you know, Scott, it is um, not something that a parent expects when you send your child off to college and you don't expect to have to deal with the loss of your son or daughter. And um, we did get that horrific phone call. It was uh, probably close to 11 p.m. 
uh, the phone rang, and it was um, one of the fraternity brothers, and he just said, I'm so sorry to disturb you this late, but there's been an accident. Harrison is here at the ER room. We were playing on campus, and it was um, uh, basically football, intramural football on campus. Scott, the story had changed uh, three times. Um, the final story that we were told, as we are in Harrison's room packing up his personal effects, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's gut-wrenching when you're in there and you have to decide what, what you want to take home and, and you see where he sat with his homework and his bulletin board, et cetera, and there was a knock at the door and we were told by one other pledge, there were only two pledges, so it was a very small pledge class, and they dealt with the brunt of the hazing, unfortunately. Very unfortunate that hazing occurred at all. And then uh, one of the brothers just said, we want you to hear it from us. And we were off campus, but it was a team-building event, and that's when the red flag went up in my husband and my mind. Um, when we heard that term, we said, hmm, something else um, had gone on. And so uh, that's when we started to investigate further. And you mentioned before, and my heart goes out to the Piazza family, and every year, year you hear about these hazing stories, and it just saddens my heart because I know exactly what the parents and the loved ones are going through. And um, you mentioned the gauntlet, and that's exactly what Harrison had to do with the other pledge. They had to run the gauntlet. It was called bulldogging. They had to run from one end of the field to the other end of the field, they were told to wear light-colored clothing, like white T-shirts. The only light was the moonlight as well as the headlights from the cars. And the brothers were wearing dark-colored clothing. And as they were running from one end to the other end of the field, the big brothers would tackle them out of left and right field, and you didn't know they were coming. The, the two pledges did not know what to expect. We had learned, Scott, that this was an activity that happened year after year after year. And so this tradition, this culture of these types of activities continues and it goes on until there's a death. And that's when something, you know, comes up where they say, okay, no more. And the chapter has been closed, but you don't want it to come to that. One death is one too many. And so Harrison had fallen hard to the ground and he had a severe head injury. They panicked. They didn't know what to do. They started Googling. You hear similar um, parallels to the story with the Penn State hazing, where they were Googling terms like head trauma. And they didn't call 911 right away. In the Piazza story, it was 12, 13 hours. Uh, in Harrison's situation, they did not call right away. And had they done that, then he would have been helicoptered or airlifted to a trauma center but they just brought him over to the local hospital, and there they could only do so much, and then eventually he was airlifted to the trauma center. So time was wasted. The clock is ticking, and that's very important, is that you need to take action right away. You know, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, it's been almost nine years, but I'm sure the pain is, is just as palatable today as it was at that time. Uh, but, you know, something that you just described, and it, it did happen in the, the, or at least it's alleged to have happened in the Piazza case as well, is the fraternity brothers waited uh, to, to make the phone call. Uh, you know, this is sad all the way around, but one of the, the, the worst aspects of my mind of all of this is that self-preservation, that the other brothers, uh, you know, cared more about covering their own rear ends than they did uh, about uh, the safety of your son or Timothy Piazza. This is very true. Um, you know, if they had thought to go ahead and prioritize and make this an emergency, in the case of Timothy Piazza, I understand there was a young man that spoke up and said, we need to bring him to the ER room, we need to call 911. But I understand um, one of the brothers didn't feel that was right, that they didn't need to, and pushed them against the wall and just said, just leave. So it's, it's not doing the right thing, and that's what they needed to think about. And I, I'm, not, I'm a parent, Scott. I am not the hazing expert, and I am not um, an individual that is an expert in higher education. But I know what it means to do the right thing and, and when to save a life, and they should have called 911. And I understand there's medical amnesty where in many of the states, not all the states, but many of the states, there are laws. And so if you go ahead and you're calling 911, 
then you can go ahead and, and basically just prioritize, save a person's life, and then deal with any type of the legal ramifications later on. But that's the priority, and that's something that I, I think every single state state needs to have. We're going to continue our conversation about hazing. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org myheart. We're discussing hazing on today's Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Emily Pawan, who is executive director of hazingprevention.org, and Leanne Kowiak, who lost her son Harrison in 2008 in a hazing incident. If you have a question or a comment, we'll give you a call, or excuse me, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. We'll take phone calls in just a moment. But Emily wanted to get back to Harrison's experience at Lenore Ryan. Is that experience unique or is it typical other than resulting in a death? I can't speak to individual uh, situations, but I think there are a lot of similarities in that um, when somebody is joining a group, they're told we're going to have some activities. They're off campus. They're at night. They're just amongst us. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't know how that was presented in the beginning, but it probably was presented as fairly harmless. We're going to have football practice or flag football or, or, or whatever the situation is. I mean, in some cases, I think the you know the, the those who are wanting to join have an inkling from others who have gone through it what might occur, but. As Leanne said, it sounds like this was happening on this particular campus and with this particular chapter for years and years and years. And while we don't know what injuries occurred, there wasn't anything as horrific as a death that brought it to everybody's attention and made it stop. So in that way, I think that both the Penn State and um, her son's situation are probably fairly common events. Leanne, something that Emily said a little bit earlier that often uh, when there is a death or a major injury, significant injury, uh, that it's not attributed to hazing, but that some other reason. That actually was the case, as you described, in in Harrison's uh, situation uh, in that, you know, you heard three different stories. But I read the newspaper article. I don't know if it was a newspaper article or just a web uh, article, uh, the news coverage of uh, Harrison's death. And the sheriff of the county in in North Carolina came right out and said it wasn't a hazing. And, you know, it was talking. I don't know. He kind of almost downplayed as to how this happened, that it was just a tragic accident. And I'm not, you know, casting any blame toward the sheriff. I'm sure those are stories he got. But I'm pointing out that it is exactly what Emily said earlier, that uh, there was not a lot of accurate information there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there were so many twists and turns with Harrison's case. And after the full investigation, this is what we had learned. And there were other situations, Scott, that had occurred prior to that, you know, jump, dump, excuse me, jumping into a dumpster and trying to get the golf balls that said Theta Chi on them. And another one that, my God, I'm, uh, I'm surprised no one got injured before, was they would blindfold, in this case, Harrison, brought him to a bridge. Uh, it was, you know, not a large bridge over maybe a, a river or a brook or what have you, but they didn't know where they were going, and they were told to stand on the ledge of the bridge and jump in, blindfolded. And as they're about to do that, the brothers hold them back, and the story or the moral of the story or, or what you're going through for that exercise is basically you do what you're told, but you have to know that your brothers are here to hold you and support you and keep you from harm's way. You know, if they did not hold back Harrison or any other individual that had gone through that exercise, um, who knows what, have, what would have happened. And so when it comes to hazing, people think that it's fun and games, that it's pranks. 
that it's something that we need to continue tradition year after year. But when is enough enough? Why do people have to be subjected emotionally and physically to belong to an organization? Parents, as well as the uh, individuals that are joining the groups, people need to ask questions before they join an organization and also be held accountable. I will tell you in this journey, Scott, this was not what I had anticipated to um, dedicate my life now to hazing prevention in my son's honor. Um, Life was good, but I'm here because as a parent, God forbid this happens to anyone else, and we've seen it happen. And so how do we prevent this from happening to other individuals? And I've encountered got so many great people on this journey, individuals in higher education, in fraternities, sororities, athletics, people whose heart and mind is in the right place for hazing prevention. But sadly, it just takes one or two or ten bad people, and it takes one death and a hazing tragedy to occur. And that's what basically is happening, where we put the limelight or the spotlight on these types of situations. But collectively, we can all work together to try to stop hazing. And that's why um, I believe in organizations such as hazingprevention.org and stophazing.org, because they are on a mission. Well, you know, it's something you just said, and I and I admit that uh, you know one of the reasons we're doing this program today is that the Piazza death did put a spotlight on hazing. It seems as though uh, those time the only time we do talk about this is when there is a death or you know a, a, a tragic accident, and you know that's unfortunate. That uh, uh, you know I know you are having the conversation all the time, but uh, we as a society don't have it until there is a tragedy, and that that's that's wrong. So let's take a phone call from Heather in Linglestown. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. Um, first is I'm not judging um, these kids because kids are dumb. Kids make stupid, stupid choices. Um, but where? Is there the personal responsibility? I can't even, I could never be that mom that you are, that you're you're so strong to deal with the death of your child, and I I pray for you every day. Um, But these kids are saying, oh, yeah, I want to join. I'm willing to put my safety at risk to be a part of this group. I'm willing to drink this much. I'm willing to do these bad things. I'm willing to watch these kids get hazed where is the personal responsibility responsibility where i don't need that in my life i'm perfectly okay not being in a group i'm perfectly okay being an individual i can um go out through the rest of my life being perfectly safe and doing the right thing when i see somebody else doing wrong and correct that thank you heather thank you very much for your call You know, she asked questions, and we'll address the part about personal responsibility, but she asked questions that I'm sure the two of you ask, and there are many others that ask, you know, why not just say no? Emily, let me start with you. Sure. And and you know what, Heather brought up very, very good points, and I think some things that that a lot of us are feeling. Uh, One of the things as a national organization is that we try to raise awareness 24-7, throughout the year. We are working, um, we started as an organization 10 years ago that focused primarily on college campuses. We have now moved much of our work down to high schools and middle schools to try to educate students, educate parents well before, you know, in the middle school level, sort of as they're just starting to join groups and have that dynamic occur, um, well before high school where the statistics show that 50%, up to 50% of um, athletes, for example, get involved in hazing activities. So they're bringing these, these, these experiences, you know, throughout their education, throughout their experiences uh, in life. And the more that we can try to get to the second part of our name, the more we can get at the prevention stage as opposed to the intervention or dealing with tragedies, I think the better off we are. But it takes the entire system. It takes, you know, parents talking to students at a very young age, reinforcing those sort of self-worth comments that Heather made, um, having you can't just have a school policy and say, we did our job. You have to really help build children up, build youth up, 
um, educate the coaches that what may have taken place in the 50s and has been glamorized, you know, is not acceptable anymore. Um, talk to national organizations and say, you have to know what's taking place at all of these chapters, whether they're sanctioned or not. The universities have to get involved, whether they're sanctioned or not. The community has to get involved. It's, it's sort of a group effort. So, Leanne, did you ever ask yourself, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's a lot of self-examination. I mean, I, I know you think about this every day and you think about Harris and every day. Did you ever ask yourself, why did he not just not say or not agree to this? Why did he just not say no? Yeah, you know, certainly there was a lot of that internal conversation that I was having and my husband and I were having. Quite frankly, you know, Heather raised some great points. And in Harrison's situation, he did not join during his freshman year. So that that was an, that, that was an opportunity. So it, that is a question. Is it too young to join during your freshman year when they're free, they're away from home, they're making decisions on their own, they're having to uh, navigate college and their schedules, and then the, all of the social activities is around them? And so in Harrison's situation, he knew that his priority was to keep up his grades and play golf well because of those scholarships. So he did not want to participate. It was the summer between freshman and sophomore year, and he says, Mom, Dad, I'm thinking of joining, and we asked him why. And he said, I just want the full college experience. And you hit the nail on the head before, Scott. You said peer pressure. And that's exactly what it was because it was some of the boys on the golf team were seniors and they were going to be graduating. And they said, come on, Harrison, you could be perhaps the next president of Theta Chi here, this chapter at Lenore Rhine. You should go ahead and, and pledge and, and join this fraternity. And so that question, you know, came up and he said, I want to pursue it. I want the full experience. This, again, was a very small university. But, again, Emily, she mentioned, you know, where, where's the accountability? Everybody cannot turn their eye on this. The university has to know what's going on. Um, in, in Harrison's case, the university knew that Hell Week existed. I understand that at the situation with Penn State, that had happened in a fraternity house. Well, I had heard that the VP of Student Affairs said, well, that's, we don't own that property. That's not under our jurisdiction. But you are, you are saying that these fraternities are sanctioned here at this university. These are your Penn State students. How could you not be accountable for that? So who is minding the store? Um, does, does the alcohol need to be banned at universities? Um, you know, some of these questions have to come into play. And people will say, well, they signed pledges or they've signed pieces of paper that said we do not haze. But what good is that piece of paper if it's just stuck in a filing cabinet and no one is, is checking on the fraternity or the sorority chapter or the athletic group? Yeah, at Penn State, uh, you know, for a little bit of background, that uh, that fraternity uh, had a no hazing uh, policy and also no alcohol policy, and obviously uh, neither one were adhered to. And uh, what's come out since is that uh, it's happened very, very often. We have a, a couple emails here. Uh, one from uh, Joe, who is an ex-Marine. He said that the Paris Island boot camp is the ultimate hazing with the purpose of building confidence and trust in your fellow Marines, it is officially sanctioned hazing. The point he brings up, though, and it, this goes back to the question of why, and, you know, I think, uh, Leanne, you used the term uh, team building, that the, this is team building, that supposedly uh, this brings members of this group or member of this club, member of this org members of this organization closer together. Uh, what about his Joe's point, though? So, you know, what good is the bonding or the team building if you've lost a player? What, where do you think the state of the minds is of all these young individuals who have participated, who, who sadly were there that night and now are dealing with this? That whole chapter is, is disbanded. They're no longer together. So that begs to ask the question, when you go through these activities, what, what, frankly, are you getting out of it? You know, it, are you there to support this person that is going through these activities? Well, where was the big brother? Where were the brothers in helping Harrison that night? You mentioned it before, Scott. They were there looking out for themselves. Same situation with the 
Piazza case, and there was another situation at Baruch University where they went to the Poconos, and, um, you know, they didn't take care of him right away, and he lost his life. And so it, it, it just went to, from, from hope, you know, what they were terming a team-building activity, and it just went downhill from there. Emily, I want to turn back to you for a moment. Uh, when we talk about why, and uh, you know, especially why young people subject themselves to this, and it's not just young people; it does happen in different ages. But usually, it is people with the ages, uh, you know, from their teenage years to uh, young adulthood. Uh, but one of the reasons that they will use to justify their participation, or you know, what it, uh, th- those who are actually part of the group is that it's a tra- tradition. It was done to them, and, you know, this is the people who are sitting back watching someone be injured or administering the alcohol or the gauntlet, if, you know, in a couple of different cases here we've uh, discussed today. But th- they're saying that this was done to us, and, you know, we not only lived through it, but we thrived. It brought us closer together, if we could use that terminology, you know, although we just used it a few times uh, that it doesn't bring together. But what about that, that it's been done, and it, it's it's a tradition, it's something that I have have to adhere to. And we hear these um, these reasons and excuses all the time. Uh, to the point of the military, I will say that the military has um, significantly cracked down on some of the practices that were considered hazing, and that the military has, you know, what they choose to keep, has very different um, sort of uh, rules and outcomes than a college club, um, that they are uh, supervised by um, you know, that, that, that the activities are supervised or sanctioned, that they are um, sort of monitored uh, and in an environment that, um, you know, one would assume the government um, does try to, um, you know, ensure that there aren't any deaths. Um, so, so I think that to, to say, well, the military does this, so why should a high school football team not, is a little bit ridiculous because you're talking about apples and oranges. Many, many of these cases that have gone, or many of these, um, you know, hazing deaths or serious injuries that have, have gone wrong have done so without any adult supervision whatsoever, have done um, during retreats, like whether it's to the Poconos or whether it's an unsanctioned chapter on a campus that is not under any national organization or adult supervision. Uh, and you can't expect that those are going to have the safety uh, requirements involved. There was a hazing death with swimmers where the swimmers had the, the members of the team go underwater, and there was no coach, there was no um, trainer, there, there was n- nobody there. They did it at night and probably with alcohol. So, um, so, so there's that issue of just because it's an activity and just because you call it team building, you came up with the the idea and didn't run it by anybody who had any kind of authority or who could protect you or be there to ensure safety. And the same with tradition. Yeah, traditions are great, and everybody loves traditions, but at what point does it cross a line where um, a tradition that might have been a, really truly a team-building exercise all of a sudden went terribly wrong, and you know we see those outcomes. People tend to glamorize the past, and so we do constantly work with boosters and uh, alumni um, who say, yeah, I went through it, you know, you should too. And a lot of our educational material directly talks about that, talks about how to work with alumni, how to work with, um, you know, people who come back and have a, a bit of prestige. Um, you know, how do you work with that within your chapter and your group? How do you identify those signs of that person who's, who, you know, is just trying to sort of live their glory days again, but you're the one that's running the risk? The laws have changed. Um, you know, the, a lot of these old practices are no longer tolerated. Let's take a final phone call during this portion of the show from Hillary in Hanover. Hillary, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to call. First of all, I wanted to express my deep condolences um, for the loss, losses of um, children to the parents that are involved. But I also wanted to express as a parent of an 18-year-old that this hazing mentality overspills into other aspects of the community, particularly in college communities. My son recently... Hillary, I think we're losing your call, but I'll try to pass along. Uh, she said that uh, she lives in a college town. Her 18-year-old son experienced hazing even in his workplace, that the mentality happens everywhere. Emily? 
It does, and we see reports of that where hazing happens in firehouses and hazing happens, um, as mentioned, in the military. I think that if you go back to what I said the definition of was, which is you know, those who want, there's a power dynamic between those who are in a group and those who want to join a group, um, that, that you, you see that occurring in workplaces, you see that occurring you know, in academia, you see that occurring in other places. I think as, and in professional sports as well, I mean, there's hazing in professional sports. The, the, the severity, the risk factors, the, you know, all of those things change as people mature. Um, we as an organization say hazing is wrong and anybody who does it seemingly innocently at a professional level is setting a bad example for youth who may take that you know, supposedly incident, uh, innocent activity and turn it into something much more dangerous because they are not mature. Um, but, but she's absolutely right that, that denormalizing the practice and saying this is not right, this is not the way we want to be as a country, this is not the way we want to be as a community, um, we want to respect each other. I think all of that is really important to nurture at all levels. You know, I wonder if this is an American thing, and uh, we really don't have time to explore a whole lot of that. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers had a pitcher from Korea a few years ago who was hazed and in the locker room and got very, very upset and left the team. And there was some question as to whether he had actually returned to the team because he was so humiliated by uh, by the hazing. So, uh, you know, I wonder if it is just an American thing. Uh, we're going to be talking with a psychologist in just a few minutes, Emily Paulwan, Executive Director of HazingPrevention.org, and Leanne Kowiak, who uh, lost her son Harrison in a hazing death. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. In all this discussion about hazing, we have to ask, and we did ask, why do people acquiesce to what they know is unacceptable immoral behavior? We usually see this kind of destructive activity happening in groups of people. Dr. Timothy Marchell is a clinical psychologist and director of Scorton. He's the, with the Scorton Center for Health Initiatives at Cornell University, where his work focuses on the promotion of student mental health and the prevention of alcohol abuse, sexual assault, and hazing. Dr. Marchell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call. Continue our conversation on hazing, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on uh, WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Michelle, the, the, the simple question, the big question is, why? Why does an 18-year-old student allow themselves to be treated in this fashion and what makes a 19-year-old student willing to haze a peer? Well, Scott, a, a basic uh, and deep need of adolescents and young adults is to be socially accepted by their peers. And at a, at a very unconscious level, the need to be accepted into a group can operate almost like a survival instinct. So teenagers fear social rejection almost like it's a threat to their existence. And they may feel this need to belong so strongly that they may reluctantly go along with being hazed. And groups that haze take advantage of this essential need to belong. And you know, some people will say, yeah, I don't understand why those kids allowed themselves to be hazed. It's not like their lives depended on getting into that group. But at an unconscious level, that's exactly how they might feel. Uh, the reasons that, uh, you know, students might uh, and, and other people might perpetuate hazing, uh, you know, have to do with, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, dynamics at both the individual and group level. You know, some people after an episode of hazing will, will say things like, you know, it was just a few bad apples in the group. These are, quote, good kids. Things just got out of hand. But hazing is, is not an accident. It's largely premeditated. And the reality is that these, quote, good kids sometimes do very bad things as a group, things that maybe are even opposed to their own values that they would never do on their own. So in order to understand the causes, we have to look more uh, deeply beyond the individual level. We have to look at the group further upstream and, and see what the conditions are that give rise to hazing, because it's really caused by multiple factors over time. You know, instead of thinking about bad apples, we use the metaphor of bad barrels that contaminate the apples. And by barrels, I mean particular kinds of social situations, cultures that often include a strong hierarchy, you know, beliefs that hazing is important, a lack of external constraint, 
a sense of impunity and, and secrecy often. So, you know, if there's a history of hazing within the group or members have been hazed in the past, like in high school, those experiences are like an infection that get, gets passed on to others. You mentioned the group dynamic, and I think that most of us have been in situations where we've been in a group of people and we probably have not spoken up when something bad has happened or something we disagree with, or maybe we have, but it, it, it takes some courage sometimes. Talk about that group dynamic. Why why are we willing to do, and I, we, meaning human beings, willing to do things as a group that maybe on an individual basis, as you described, we would look at and say, you know, that's not right. Well, one of the things uh, is, as I mentioned, the, the need to belong is not just for people that are uh, joining a group, but people that want to maintain their status in a group. So sometimes people don't feel like they can take the risk of speaking up. And there's a, there's a phenomenon called groupthink that occurs. And that's when uh, in, in highly cohesive groups, there's a desire for conformity. Uh, and that results in dangerous decision-making where group members try to minimize conflict by silencing others who might have dissenting views or, or people refrain from speaking up even when they disagree with what's going on. So that's something we definitely see in hazing incidents, like when no one calls for help when someone is passed out from alcohol poisoning. But it also occurs before the hazing incident uh, uh, transpires. So, you know, it happens when the plans are being made, when the intention to uh, haze is being formed. So as an example, if someone in a group proposes that, you know, we haze the new guys the way we were hazed, and no one speaks up to say that they really hated going through it and that the group ought to stop it, that's an example of of groupthink that occurs before the episode. Let's take a phone call from Les in Harrisburg. Les, you're on the air. You probably should turn your radio down, Les. There you go. go okay, ahead. thank you. Yes. Thank you. I would like to get on, have, uh, have talked to you a few minutes ago, but uh, my question is, why why do um, fraternities and sororities have to be under the umbrella of a college or university? Why can't they exist as an independent unit outside uh, the boundaries of the college, and uh, it would be like a Rotary Club where uh, there's a local chapter, but the Rotary Club comes directly under the control, I guess they call it Rotary International or Rotary Headquarters. It seems like uh, I just don't understand why colleges have to sanction um, uh, fraternities and sororities. It just seems they're, they're putting themselves in a uh, no-win situation with it. All right. Thank you very much for your call. And, uh, Dr. Marshall, I don't know whether you're in a position to answer this, but uh, it, it goes back to why there are fraternities and sororities in the first place. May, and maybe you can address his point of why colleges and universities sanction them. Well, uh, many colleges and universities have had a longstanding relationship with fraternities and sororities, uh, which you know date back to the mid 1800s, uh, and to a great extent, on, you know, that varies across campuses. But many of these organizations are independent, uh, private organizations, and the relationship between the the, the uh, organization and the university is one of recognition. So the university uh, doesn't uh, supervise them technically, uh, but they recognize that these are private uh, entities. There's a self-governing process uh, that they fall under. But in order to attain certain uh, benefits of being in relationship with the university, uh, they have to comply with certain standards. So it's kind of a complex uh, legal relationship. We have an email here from Andrea in Columbia. It says recent studies have shown that decision making, the decision making part of the brain in the twenties, uh, you know, has not fully developed. Does that contribute to these poor decisions that are being made? Well, that contributes to. I mean, that's accurate, and it contributes to uh, the poor decisions that are made uh, uh, by a lot of young people on a lot of levels, not just in relation to hazing, but all kinds of risk behaviors. Uh, but one of the things that I would point out uh, again is that uh, the poor decision is not uh, the poor decision making is not simply sort of in the moment, but it's in terms of the planning uh, and and the informing the intention or the motivation to haze, uh, and and that's something uh, that is a reflection of uh, practices and traditions that have been handed down across generations in groups. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, we have another email here from a listener in Harrisburg. Uh, you know, we've been focusing a lot talking about he, meaning that uh, this is something that happens uh, only or mostly at fraternities, but it does happen when there are women involved as well. Um, this this listener points out that hazing at sororities also includes sexual situations and expectations. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if that goes back to, you know, from a psychological point of view, even more humiliation. It's an important point to underscore that uh, hazing occurs in all types of groups, teams, and organizations. It's perpetrated by men and women. Uh, sometimes the, the form that the, the hazing will take uh, is, is different across types of groups. So, uh, in, in for example, in all male groups like fraternities or in athletic teams, you'll, you're more likely to see some overt physical violence at times. Uh, uh, in all female groups like sororities, you will see uh, often uh, alcohol abuse, but uh, more uh, emotional abuse, humiliation, sometimes sexual degradation, being expected, for example, to engage in simulated sexual activities. So uh, the caller is making a good point uh, that it happens in women's groups as well. You mentioned alcohol, and this is something that you focus on at, at Cornell. Uh, it seems as though almost every time we hear about one of these uh, incidents, uh, we're pledging or, uh, you know, whether it's uh, joining a group or hazing in a group, that alcohol is somehow involved. Well, alcohol contributes uh, to hazing in, in a few ways. And one thing I would say is that there's many forms of hazing that don't involve alcohol. Uh, so, you know, uh, having to, you know, uh, wear humiliating costumes in public, being woken up in the middle of the night and screamed at, uh, having to eat unpalatable food like shots of Tabasco sauce, these are things that don't directly involve alcohol. But the way that alcohol functions in hazing is twofold. One is that perpetrators will consume alcohol themselves as a form of disinhibition to perhaps justify uh, their abusive behavior or, or deal with the fact that it, it's creating some uh, tension for themselves in, in terms of conflict with their own values. The way it works with the victims is that perpetrators will give victims alcohol to um, basically uh, impair their ability to understand what's going on, to resist, and this is really not unlike what sex, sex offenders do in relation to potential victims. Mm. We have an email here from a listener. says, uh, you know, I wanted to bring up our culture's lack of coming-of-age rituals. The desire to test people or welcome people into adulthood has existed in almost every culture and every time period, but it expresses itself differently. I think the desire to welcome people into adulthood in some way or to mark the occasion is part of what has perpetrated hazing. I think as a culture, there's a need to develop some type of coming-of-age ritual that is meaningful, that does not involve drugs or alcohol. I don't have a solution, however. I think it's a place for people to start. What about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it, if you look at religious uh, uh, communities like uh, in the Jewish community ha where young people have a bar or bat mitzvah or in the Christian uh, faith, uh, perhaps a confirmation, it marks the transition to adulthood. And so within groups or teams, traditions often reflect a desire to share a, a common experience that fosters unity, creates a sense of belonging, and marks a transition in the person's life. But the reality is that there are things that were acceptable in groups in the past that people might go to jail for today. And, you know, our thinking about where to draw the line in relation to hazing has really changed. So the challenge is to, how, is to maintain and, and in some cases create new traditions while eliminating ones that are no longer acceptable. Let's take a, a phone call from David in Lancaster. David, I have to say I'm short on time, and I hate to be with, with your story. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Yes. So, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, I know. It's just... My son um, attended Penn State before the Sandusky business, where the administration ruled with an iron fist any, any issues. And uh, my son pledged a fraternity in the winter semester. And um, he, I don't know if he was drugged or just got too drunk, but they beat him. They took off his clothes except for his shorts and drove him to Belfont, right, half an hour away in shorts and a T-shirt in 30-degree weather with a broken nose, bleeding, and left him there. Fortunately, he was rescued, and, you know, we, we approached administration. They had just hired uh, somebody who was supposed to be monitoring uh, the fraternities and such, and 
they this fraternity, which I don't have the name in front of me, but they are supposed to have registered anybody who goes to one of these parties, and they did not. But I couldn't even get a lawyer. I think today would be a different different environment, but I couldn't even get a lawyer who would stand up against uh, the administration. Mm-hmm. And it was just, uh, you know, we feel every time we hear a story, it, we just feel terrible. And I'm wondering how many unreported hazings there are. You know, we're only hearing about deaths. But hey, um, D- David, I hate to interrupt you. That more is happening. Thank you very much for your call. And that is a that's a terrible story. I hope that his uh, son did not, uh, you know, suffer any long-term effects. And that brings up a point. We only have about a minute left, Doctor. But uh, are there people who do suffer PS, uh, PTSD or long-term effects from this? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, the, the impact uh, on uh, young people from being hazed uh, can be quite severe. Uh, at an emotional level, uh, depending on, uh, you know, what they go through and what their past experience is, uh, you know, they can experience humiliation, uh, depression, anxiety. If they've had past traumatic experiences, those uh, types of hazing experiences can be re-traumatizing. The kind of thing that, that your caller is, is talking about is really horrific uh, and, and can certainly uh, cause uh, you know, uh, a significant emotional impact, and I would really encourage anyone who has go th- goes through that experience to uh, seek some uh, professional support if they're having any difficulties emotionally in the aftermath. This is probably impossible, Dr. Marshall, but in 30 seconds or less, how do we break the cycle? Well, I think that uh, we have to realize that we're at a historic moment in relation to hazing. The train has really left the station in terms of society's thinking. So we have to realize that it's not an innocent rite of passage. We have to realize that it's both harmful and unnecessary. And students, alumni, parents, staff, and faculty all have a role to play in putting an end to hazing. Dr. Timothy Marshall is a clinical psychologist and director of the Scorton Center for Health Initiatives at Cornell University. Dr. Marshall, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's good to be with you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to talk about um, retirement, retirement planning in particular, also about the street rods in York. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.